Welcome to Rewrite the Mother Code, the show where we can explore our inner mothers to actualize our greatest selves. Through interviews with incredible guests, live coaching sessions, and my own experiences, we're going to dive deep into embracing feminine values and reparenting ourselves. So be prepared to show up, hold space, and be mothered in a way that you never have before, but have always needed. It's time to rewrite the mother code. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Rewrite the Mother Code with me, your host, Dr. Gertrude Lyons. I am so fortunate to have some of the most wonderful guests on my show. I'm grateful every time. I learn so much. I hope they're valuable, uh, expanding our awareness of all things surrounding our self-mothering, around how much the world needs more mothering, how we each individually need more mothering, and how we can take that into the world. And that's something my guest, who I'm excited to introduce and have you hear from, is Alexandra Ford. And Alexandra, a former trafficking victim turned activist, is coming on the show to share her journey and to enlighten us about you know, this world that for many of us, we may seem like, oh, that's in some other like dark far corners of the earth that it's maybe one thing i don't have to consider or think about but it's actually something that is closer to many of us than we'd like to think and i think we're going to find out a lot about one empathy is always a good thing right so having compassion and being open for someone who's you know vulnerable enough to come out and share about her experience and then take that experience so she can inform and raise the awareness of, of others is very brave indeed. And I just ask that as we go into this episode, you stay open, look for ways that you can relate. Her story obviously won't, not obviously, but may not be anything like your story, but that there's always connections, always ways we can we can explore and look at some things that maybe we don't like looking at, but when someone else is sharing about it, it gives us some distance so we can, we can see where we can relate. We can see just, and just allow ourselves to be with the feelings that we have and look at ways that we, you know, do or do not stay with whatever feeling we have. It could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be just hurt, you know, and I I also do want to say, you know, that it can evoke strong emotions. I, I think sometimes people talking about, you know, these really challenging, difficult, traumatic moments can re-trigger trauma in us. So I also do ask that you take care of yourself. You take care as you listen. If anything does get triggered, that you reach out for the support, any and all support that's in your purview to do so. And I think you'll also find some major inspiration, you know, when we can take really just the bottom barrel, most difficult times in our life and how we can turn those around. And Alexandra really shows us the way and has a way of doing that in this very relatable, beautiful way. So without further ado, here we go. Let's dive in. Well, I am 
blessed and honored to introduce my guest, our guest, the show's guest uh, for today. Thank you so much for being on the show, Alexandra. No, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I shared, you know, briefly before you came on a bit about what you're doing and the difference and the impact that you're making in an arena that I think most of us would love to think didn't wasn't happening or isn't happening near or around them, but it is, you know, or they or it's misunderstood. And that's what I love about it is human trafficking and which is a devastating topic, you know, to begin with that we even have to talk about it, obviously, but that it's important that we understand it and have our awareness Mm -hmm. around it. Um, Whether or not you have children, you know, who knows how this is going to, you know, strike you or, but we want to be advocates. We want to be aware. We want to understand possible situations that we may have been in that we didn't Mm -hmm. realize. And I think that's some of your story. So it's really huge. And this is what you are out there in the world, vulnerably sharing, you know, your story. You've founded um, a couple ways to do that. Uh, one is uprising in a, in Wyoming, and that's a whole, mm-hmm. I'll have you share much more about it, but, you know, that's an organization dedicated to raising awareness, educating, you know, bringing you and others, you know, to the table to help parents, children, people, you know, everyone understand what this really is. And then, you know, through your own personal work with the brand Laughing Survivor, and I know we'll talk about that in the name, uh, where you live in British Columbia. So, yeah, you know, you're you're an activist, you're a trafficking victim yourself. You know, you've you have incredible resilience um, and courage to be out there inspiring me and others to persevere and and foster compassion. You know, around this very painful issue. So. I'd love to turn it over to you, uh, Alexandra, and have you share some of your journey and let's raise some awareness as we go here today. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, you know, I think you just hit on so many of the points that um, you know, people can't see. I'm nodding along like, yes, absolutely. The raising right. awareness, the idea that like, we don't want human trafficking to be part of our you know, backyard barbecues and everyday conversations. But the only way to make that happen is to first make it part of our everyday conversations, to be understanding what it is and and who it happens to. And then we can work towards eradicating it. But first we have to understand it. And I think that is how I can jump into my story a little bit because I didn't understand human trafficking. So my background, I'm Canadian. I was born and raised in Ontario. Um, Very regular family. I had an older brother, older half brother. My parents were together. I say boring, like boring, middle-class suburban neighborhood, just like the absolute normal of all normals. And I put that in quotation marks, but, and at, I say around 11 or 12 years old, I actually kind of found my calling, which is like really early. Um, But I had a teacher read us a story about a young boy in Toronto who had Uh, himself read a story about another young boy in Pakistan who had been exploited in child labor. And when he spoke, when the boy in Pakistan uh, named Iqbal Massey spoke out, he was shot. Now, the boy who, the Canadian boy who read about this heard about it and he said, like, what is happening? I can't believe this. And he actually founded an organization called Free the Children, which later became We Charity, which was a massive charity behind the Me to We movements across the globe. It was all Uh about children helping children. So I heard about this myself and two friends, and really it was this 
like wild understanding that there was a world outside of my front doorstep and that that world actually wasn't necessarily all that safe. And I was in Mm. fact really lucky to have what I had, a roof, family, friends, not have to work, all of that. So I became a staunch advocate um, against child labor and child exploitation. And uh, my friends and I, you know, skipped school dances to collect petition signatures to send to our government. We raised money for school and health kits to send kids who had been freed from exploitation. I just absolutely fell into this advocacy role and I loved it. Wow. Now, a couple about a year or two later, one of my best friends, not one of the the girls I was doing the advocacy work with, but another friend of mine, her uncle actually began sexually assaulting me. And that started when I was about 13 years old and it went on for four or five years um, pretty consistently. Mm. Now, obviously, these aren't necessarily thoughts I I was conscious of while it was happening. But thinking back and having done therapy, there was a lot in there where I was beginning to understand the world as a young teenager, a young female teenager, that my looks were my value. And at that point... I had, you know, a unibrow that rivaled, you know, Burt's from Sesame mm. Street. Um, I had big round glasses. This is before Harry Potter, of course, so they were not cool. Mm. Um, hairy arms. I was a like a kid advocate, which did not endear me to my peers. So when this older, good-looking man showed interest in me, I really fabricated this idea in my head that we were in a relationship, maybe a yeah. clandestine one, but it it seemed like there was some real, it was re- oh. yeah, yeah, there was a mutuality to it. And up until this point, um, my parents had certainly talked to me and the school had talked about unwanted touch. You know, we had the, my body's nobody's body, but mine song, mm. but sexual assault had only been described in a manner of saying no or screaming no or fighting there was there had to be a fight in there and for me so i never viewed what happened to me or i didn't for a long time view what happened to me as sexual assault because i didn't fight i thought there was this mutuality in the relationship i was 13 he was 30 so there was not but i certainly thought there was however my body and my consciousness knew there was something wrong because Mm -hmm. i start i i ditched the advocacy work i started smoking weed falling into a world of drugs just falling kind of further off track. I kept up appearances really well. So I wasn't the kid that went from being an advocate to, you know, suddenly skipping school and all of that. I managed to keep good grades and keep up appearances. So nobody really knew what was going on. And I certainly didn't either consciously understand it. Sure. But I definitely fell into this world of drugs until I was doing meth on a regular Mm. basis. And I was about at this point, uh, I'd say about 20 years old. Mm. And I ended up dating the town meth dealer and I consciously did it. It seemed sure. like a great idea at the time. But at that point, I, like that, yeah. you know, logically makes sense, right? If I'm going to keep, I I have this habit now, I have this addiction, right? So that it would lead you there. Absolutely. And he had, so he also had obviously a fair amount of clout in the town power, so to say. And I yeah. had learned at this point that my power, if I wanted power, as a woman, it was probably going to have to be attached to a penis somewhere. Mm -hmm. So dating someone with power was more likely going to get me power or social clout or whatever than trying to get it on my own. Right. So it was a very conscious decision. And I certainly, to an extent, knew what I was getting into. You know, the saying, you lay with dogs, you get fleas. Like Mm. I knew this underground world was, had some danger to it and whatever else. 
Yeah. It was just expected. And it was part of the allure, frankly. So our relationship was short, intense, became very violent very quickly, but I thought I had a handle on it. And so when he turned to me and said, Hey, you know, we're doing more of the drugs than we're selling. We need to supplement our income. Can you help? I looked at this as sort of a Bonnie and Clyde business partnership sort of yeah, deal. Isn't this and I exciting, thought, right? We're yeah. going to go in business together. And again, I'd been taught up until this point that my value laid in how I looked. And I had, you know, separated the eyebrows and grown the hair out and gotten contacts and had what these kids these days are calling a glow up. Mm-hmm. So when he said, hey, you could certainly help by distracting people while I steal some things we can pawn. Yeah, of course I can do that. I'm good at that. I can do that. The problem was it really just took this one co-conspirator criminal act for Mm -hmm. me to, when he tried, you know, suggested the next thing. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, I don't know about that. He's like, oh, but do you want everyone to know you stole from them? Like, wait a second. I did? Thought we did. So from there, it really spiraled. And, you know, literally one day we were at a strip club. We used to party there. And all of a sudden I feel hands underneath my armpits and I'm being lifted up off my feet and put on stage. And the last thing I hear in my ear is don't get down until you've made me some money. And, you know, I had in the early stages of our relationship, I'd sent him pictures because that's, you know, the millennial love letter, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had sold them. And then when I stopped sending him pictures, he took it upon himself to gather them through means of drugging my drinks until I was unconscious and then taking photos and selling them online. I I never quite knew the extent of what happened there. And I chose not to dig. I didn't really want Mm -hmm. to know. Um, This is also back in 2007. So thankfully, cell phone pictures were not what they are today. So all of this, there's so many of these things in which the overall umbrella was he used my body to make himself money. Yes. Now, fast forward 10 years, I've escaped him. Uh, he actually came, he found me about a year and a half after I escaped. We fi- I finally went to the police. We went through a full court case investigation. Um, he was held in jail. When he got out of jail, he was actually killed in a situation unrelated to me. Wow. So that kind of put an end to that. I went to post-secondary education. I got a degree in criminology. I got a post-grad in victimology. I got an honors diploma in community and justice services. I went into the workforce kind of revamping that I want to help people. I want to be an advocate and activist. Worked in the courthouse with police, with victims, with offenders, all of this. And all I ever understood my experience to be was domestic violence and a series Mm -hmm. of my own bad decisions. So Mm -hmm. I wore that shame of, I just made a lot of bad choices in my life Mm. until one day I'm in Wyoming. I was living there and I met a woman who was doing some anti-trafficking work. And I said, you know, I know nothing about human trafficking, but I'm an activist and an advocate and and maybe I can help. And as I shared my story with her, she was like, he used your body to make himself money. That's That's trafficking. trafficking. Yeah. And let me tell you, my mind exploded because this is now 10 years after my exit. I've been through a court case. There was law enforcement involved. I have all of this experience in and around this field and I had no idea. And for me, it was like, if I have no idea, how is anyone else else supposed to to. know? Right. right? Yeah. And that's how I got involved in this work. And that is how Uprising was, well, co-founded. It was myself and Terry, that woman I was speaking to who co-founded Uprising. Wow. 
Thank you. You know, is like the the first thing I want to say because I I think it would be so easy to experience what you experience. Like, sure, maybe do your own healing, but the courage it takes to then be public with it in the service of helping others um, is a big deal, right? And Thank you. and to share and just even to share what you shared. And I know we're going to get into how you call your brand "Laughing Survivor" because you know that's an important aspect of it's okay to be that way. You know, mm-hmm. around around this when you have a purpose around it. You know, when you've done the healing and you're not like covering up painful things with laughter, that's not the point, I know. So we can say a a bit more about that maybe, but I just want to underline, because I talk about this, you know, in the mothering realm, right? Rewrite the mother code. Like what's happening in our culture around decisions we make in that whole process, right? Just the fact that we think mothering is exclusive to women who have children when no, actually we all mother. Right. And, and then there's all those decisions that you can make. And I'm I'm not putting this at the same level, but I just, I want to like generalize it in a way that this is why I think again, it's so important is when you don't know, you don't know, and you don't know you have choices. You don't know you have options. You don't know, you know, that things may be being done very poorly in an arena and these choices, but it's all we know about. So that's what we think we have to deal with, right? Like we, with limited knowledge, you know, we're, we're just going to make what sometimes are bad choices and we don't even know it, right? We're just mm-hmm. fish in water in that regard. So had you known and had this awareness once you decided to like bring it to the courts and go to the police that you, it was human trafficking, would that have at like one, I know just the knowledge for yourself to know that this, I think the biggest thing, right, is what I'm getting from you sharing is that, oh, I've been holding all this shame. Like this is my fault just because of the choices I made to get hooked up in this sphere. Yes, he was doing bad things, but I was complicit. But I think it added a layer to you letting go of that shame. But also it's important that the court system that we know um, and when we're trying to bring it to justice, you know, that this is an aspect of that justice, not just domestic violence, you know, but to add this to it. So I know I just said a whole lot, uh, what, you know, if you want to pick up anywhere from, from any of these aspects, that would be great. Absolutely. You nailed the biggest thing was the shame. Hmm. I thought, and it was treated as what I had experienced was domestic violence and a series of my own bad decisions because I had consented to the original request, which was, Hey, can you distract people while I steal from them? I didn't understand that for me, it was like a slippery slope. I said yes to this. So I'm at fault for everything that came after that. Mm. I didn't understand that the emotional and physical violence I was experiencing meant that I was coerced and Mm -hmm. coercion and consent can coexist. And if they do, the coercion voids the consent. And this is... Mm a subject and an area that I talk about and I, I, one of the hills I will die on because Mm -hmm. it is one of the most complex ideas when it comes to consent surrounding sexual intimacy. It's again, the idea I understood sexual assault to happen if someone was screaming no and trying to fight that narrow minded, that myopic idea of what sexual assault meant, meant that even though part of me absolutely knew that there was something wrong with what was happening with my friend's uncle, I wasn't screaming and fighting and saying no. 
So I, again, wore that blame. And even in the way, so we did go to court against him. And even in the way I remember the defense, his defense attorney asking me a question, weren't you excited by an older man being interested in you? Well, yeah, I was 13. That shouldn't have been on me. Right. But I wore that. And I had at that point done a fair amount of therapy to take that off. And just having that defense attorney reflect my own thoughts back to me at that time reminded me how much stigma and how much victim blaming exists in this space still when it comes to trafficking. Like I think I can't say we all know, but it's becoming fairly, I think common knowledge to understand the stigma that people who experience sexual violence have to deal with Mm. and the victim blaming and all of that. Human trafficking is on a whole other level it is still so dark and underground because people don't understand what human trafficking is. Right. And there's well, I still didn't so until I <laughs> Exactly, I mean, right? Well, I thought I did, but and maybe uh, you can say more about this, but of course we only have a Hollywood or yes, I'm going to call it worst case. I don't know, the like explicit like stealing a child from their home and putting them in a, you know, in a situation, right? Like I think that's generally how I had had understood it until. Oh, me too. The movie Taken, right? Yes. yes. Somebody's stolen. There's a lot of, you know, screaming white van, whatever it is. And it's usually a large crime ring. They're transported over a border of some kind. Maybe there's a shipping container involved, like something like this is the image that people have of human trafficking. When in reality, it can be in your own neighborhood A boyfriend saying, hey, we're not going to make rent this month. Can you go see if you can like shave a couple hundred dollars off by spending an hour or two with the landlord? That right there, Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstance, like details and all, but that can be trafficking. So we need to, that's one of the big awareness things is to bring more awareness to it. So both A, awareness helps to counteract shame and stigma. And not just so the community knows what human trafficking is, but so people who are being trafficked go, oh, this isn't my fault. Okay, I have somewhere I can turn. They're not just going to be like, well, you made some bad choices. So you got to, you know, you made your bed. Now you got to lie in it. Mm -hmm. Like you're complicit. And I just think that is Mm -hmm. so important and critical, especially in this arena where it's, it's still, I say still, like, I, I don't know. I do hope there'll be an end, you know, to this stigma, as you said, but, you know, myth or belief that like, it's the woman's somehow it, it ends up like the woman's fault, you know, or the, I, I'm going to say women, cause we're women. Um, but obviously it's not gender specific in this regard because young boys are exploited as well, but that understanding like that can be just enough for somebody to hear to then look at a situation that they might be in that someone has told them is fine or it's this or they're manipulating them in some way that they've rationalized, but known it's not okay, but somehow rationalized like you were saying, right? In your situation, like, well, and this is where I think it gets tricky too, because, you know, like with you, with your uncle, like the attention feels good. The, you know, like to have an attractive older man, like pay attention to you when you're dealing with other stuff in your life, like, can feel good right but then that gets turned against us right because yeah like you said like it doesn't matter it's wrong and it's against the law and that has nothing to do with like what's wrong about it 
Right. I mean, I think about other things like raising awareness, particularly with teens, like mad, you know, and drunk driving, you know, and I mean, my kids who are grown now, but you know, it was very clear that you don't drink and drive like, and they were, Mm -hmm. there was no, nobody argued that nobody tried to rationalize it. It had been, (laughs) you know, educated significantly to them. And then one day they were talking, I hear them talking and they're like, in what context? I can't remember exactly, but in some context, they were talking about somebody who was driving while they were high on weed, Mm. but that was okay. Like some, like what I said, that's not okay. Like that's, they're impaired. This is, they're like, wait, no, it's just weed. It's not, they weren't drinking. Like it was that fine of a line. Like, okay, we know drinking isn't, but nobody told us weed wasn't, you know, going to impair, possibly impair our driving decisions. Yeah. So we have to get that explicit and especially with the teen mind, let alone then us, you know, as adults who want to just then block out anything like that as a reality, right? We just don't Mm want to grasp it. It's a reality. And I I think that's why it's so important to put it like, and I don't mean to make this sound like negative, but in our faces, like we have to have this in our face or we won't recognize it when it's possibly going on right around us. And as I'm sorry, because there's things I've read or listened to, and I'm not sure if you are, have already said it, but how often things like this mostly happen with people that, you know, right. Or people, this isn't the random person that comes and steals you off the street. That's probably like it happens, but way, way less than the somebody getting into your life and I'm just wondering, you know, well, first if comment on that and then share when you're educating, like how, you know, you kind of bring to light, like what, what are the things to look for? What are the the signs that, so we can all be, you know, mothers to our own children, mothers to others, children and to ourselves, if we've gone through it and didn't realize what something that we've been through could be, could be this. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So I think one of the uh, myths like or or kind of overarching myth that mm-hmm. I always want to bust and I will shut down as quickly as I can is I always see these things that go around the internet that say if you find a rose under your windshield wiper or traffickers will put a peanut butter on your on your door handle or something like these just super random weird things the idea is that someone will target your car in a public open space, like a mall parking lot or something like that, somehow target you randomly like that. As you pull out, you will not know you're targeted until whatever it is. You go to clean your windshield and peanut butter smears across it. So now you have to pull over to clean it. And at this point, they'll come and they'll snatch you and take you away. So, and it's it's so many different versions of this, wow. but the, the idea, the crux of it like comes down to the white van snatching a kid off the street corner or something, right? Mm. And I want to shut that down. So that, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm saying in all of the work I've done, in all of the work my colleagues have done, both law enforcement and survivors and victim advocates, I would dare say it is about 1% to less than 1% of cases we deal with. Less than less wow. than one percent, and that's what we see. That's that is what, what you see. Is what you're how you're supposed to protect yourself. Wow. Yes, and it's that is that's not going to be helpful. So I will can tell you a little bit about how to protect yourself and how to look sure. for signs. Yeah. So protect yourself, your loved ones, your community. All of that is going to be first and foremost. Talk about consent. 
talk about what consent is because consent is not just not just someone not saying no right we need to it's no longer no means no it's now Mm -hmm. yes means yes and that yes needs to be freely given it needs to be reversible it needs to be informed it needs to be enthusiastic and it needs to be specific Mm -hmm. so we need to be understanding consent from a very 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 young age that's something i have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and i already talked to them about consent don't necessarily talk to them about consent in a deep sexual manner but when they steal my son steals his sister's toy like oh did you ask her consent before you took that it doesn't need to be a word that is Mm -hmm. steeped in you know sexuality or anything like that it means permission normalize it you're normalizing that word so then that we, our brain, everything is going to feel much more free to use it um, mm-hmm. and doesn't have to distinguish, right? Like doesn't get like, kind of shoved in that corner of that thing yeah. we talk about once every three years where everyone's deeply uncomfortable and tries to end the conversation exactly. as quickly as possible. The other thing is I am not someone who believes in teaching from fear. I teach using connection and laughter. Um, that's part of the laughing survivor thing. When it comes to online safety with kids, I do have to inject a little bit of fear in there because Mm. people need to understand the risk they're taking. So when I'm telling you your kid is not going to get snatched off the street while they're walking to school or the likelihood is, you know, less than 1%, what I will tell you is that law enforcement I've worked with or people who work in the Internet Crimes Against Children um, division have told me that if your child has an online presence, whether that is because they have their own phone and social media or because you are posting them on yours, it is not if a predator sees them, it is when. Mm. They will be seen by a predator online. Now, does that mean throw your phone in the fire and never post anything? Not necessarily. Does it mean I'm shaming you if you do choose to post pictures of your kid? No. I'm saying be smart about it. So the first thing, you know, back to school time is now, right? Right. Please do not post a picture of your kid holding a little board saying, I am, this is my name. I'm this year's old. This is the school I'm attending. This is my teacher's name. This is what I want to be when I grow up. This is my favorite color. Like all of this, Mm. because guess what? You have just handed someone a bunch of information that especially younger kids, if they come up and someone comes up and says, hey, your mom sent me, um, I'd love to get to know you more. Oh, you know, I know you go to this school or they message them online. They have all this information about them. So um, when we say it's not a a stranger that's going to snatch someone off the street, it's because it could still be a stranger, but that stranger is going to spend some time getting to know the person, whether it's a kid, young adult, that's part of the grooming process. They want to know what's going on in this kid's life. They want to know what makes them vulnerable. They want to know who the closest people are to them so they can start distancing from them from those people. So when you have your child is old enough, whatever age you deem them old enough to have their own cell phone, my best advice is you teach them how to use that cell phone the same way 
You taught them how to cross the street when they were little. You didn't just one day say, well, you've got legs and there's a street, like, hope you do well. Good luck. (laughs) Watch them scurry across the street and just hope it all works out. Mm -hmm. You hold first, you're holding them in your arms. Next, they're walking, but you're holding their hand, probably grasping their wrist so they can't let go. And then maybe they're walking beside you. And then as the trust builds, and then if they start darting away from you, you're going to go back to holding their hand until you trust them again, that they're going to stay with you. Online safety, same thing. Don't just hand them the the device and say, well, good luck. You say, hey, this is, you know, a cell phone. This is how you use it. They probably already know and are going to teach you some things realistically. Exactly. But have some pretty tight rules. Hey, uh, that cell phone does not go into your bedroom. It stays, it charges on the kitchen counter at night. After you go to bed, I will be going through it. I'm going to be looking through the apps. I'm going to be looking through your DMs. Be transparent about it because you don't want to break trust by doing it all sneaky like. But you want to have, you want to earn my trust with this device. I need to see what's going on. And if there's anything in there that worries me, we're going to have a chat about it. Then as they get older, as they earn your trust, as you see more and more, it's innocent. They're not posting things. They don't have a Finsta or a fake Insta where they post things that they don't want their family to see. Yeah. Um, then maybe they they get a little bit more trust and you say, okay, I'm no longer going through your cell phone or I'm only going to do it once every three months, or we're only going to do it together in the same room. Mm. But I would still recommend keep cell phones and iPads out of bedrooms and bathrooms because we know that where that's, you know, a lot of pictures are taken yeah. until they're old enough that you have that trust and they have that understanding. We need to know that instead of putting all of our fear into a stranger snatching a kid or a vulnerable person off the side of the road, these devices invite them into our homes, invite potential strangers into our homes. And it gives them the connection to turn themselves from a stranger into a trusted confidant. Mm. And that's what you need to be concerned about is not the stranger on the road is the stranger in your kid's cell phone becoming their trusted confidant especially because we share so much we share so much online you know and you don't even realize how much you're sharing you don't realize that that picture you took you know of your kids running towards you after their first day of school shows their school uniform and that shows where they're at so someone messaging them, oh, I have a kid who goes to that school. Do you know so-and-so? No? Oh, well, you know, they're a year or two ahead of you. Just those little connections make us feel like, oh, this person's not a stranger. They're safe. Mm-hmm. And as soon exactly. as they formed that initial bond, that's where deeper bonds can be formed. Mm-hmm. So those are the things you need to be looking out for. Hi, I'm so excited to share with you my 2024 Spring Equinox Self-Mothering Retreat that's happening this March, 2024. And I would love for you not only to consider it, but to attend. But in considering it, hey, just knowing that you would be leaving cold weather if that's the space that you're in and coming down to just magnificently beautiful, warm, nourishing place of Zihuatanejo, Mexico, Zihuatanejo, meaning land of the goddess women, and coming to really take time for yourself, okay? And that I am learning more and more isn't just a nice thing to do or something extravagant or something selfish. It's essential. And I really want you to take it seriously to consider, you know, just think about what would it take for me to go? It's a five and a half day retreat 
getting from where you are, getting there, landing there, and then being in a space that is all about you. It's all about nourishing you. It's all about tuning into you, using everything around us, the nature, the food, the beautiful people, the rituals, ceremonies. I bring it, you know, we really bring it. And we go deeper and deeper as the days go on and we release, we let go, we bring in what is nourishing, what is empowering, what is that space of just really divine feminine energy. And we do it in the community of women. It's not for everyone, I will be honest. You know, if that idea of leaving and not making it work or it's just too hard, not for you. If the idea of, you know, spending that amount of time inwardly focused and going to that level of self-awareness doesn't sound like something you're willing to do or put the time and energy into, then it's not for you. And it's good to know that, right? So this is for people who are serious about what it means to mother themselves, what it means to take time for ourselves and that gift and what that gift can bring to us. It was originally right after my fall retreat, it filled right up. But now some people, it turns out, are not able to come. So I do have a handful of openings. And if you're listening to this and you're willing to take that step, please reach out to me. We can do a discovery call or you can put a deposit down. I would love that. And you can do that by going to my website, www.drgertrudelyons.com. Go to events and there you go. It'll all be there. There's a beautiful page there for you to explore. I look forward to hearing from you and then seeing you on my spring retreat. No, thank you so much. Cause I, I know, I mean, I'm past that age and we didn't, oh my God, I'm so grateful for so many years of my children's upbringing. We didn't have it. Social media wasn't a thing. <laughs> so I'm like, when they were little, right? But then as teens, and I, I did see some some things happening. We, But, you know, I just look back and like grateful because I didn't have all of this information, you know, or go to at that extent that didn't happen just feels sometimes like luck, right? I'm grateful because, and I think that's where we have to watch. Like we don't, that takes time to, and they're going to re- resist it. They're not, most kids, especially when they get to be teens, are not going to be happy about about you having their cell phone, you know, or saying you're going to look like this takes, you know, building a relationship and you being willing, especially when they get to be teens to be the bad guy, you know, to have them not like you because of it, because it's really our job to keep them safe, not have them like us. Right. And I think that's what is so powerful about what you're saying and being that person that it is somewhere where it's like, we do need to be a little paranoid. We don't need to be obsessed by it. We don't, you know, like we don't have to 24 seven check their phone or, you know, hover. We want to mm-hmm. build some trust, but I like what you said. It's like, it starts out pretty intense, but then they build trust with you. And this is a great arena and place to do that, to build that trust, you know, and yay, it helps keep them safe. Right. But <laughs> we need those ways, of course. To build, right. Um, to build that trust with them and uh, to have that. I was going to say, and it helps build trust within them as well for themselves, like trust within themselves as they Mm -hmm. see that you are starting to trust them. That helps. Oh, I'm trustworthy. Like this feels good. It feels good to be trusted by my mom or my dad or my aunt or my uncle or whoever. 
it feels good to know that I have them to turn to. They have my back, but I've demonstrated that I'm trustworthy and they're now giving me, you know, a little bit more space. And I think that building of trust in oneself is so critically important for all teens and especially for women, for girls, because Mm -hmm. we're taught not to trust ourselves from a really young age, right? We're taught to lose our voice, to not speak up, to, well, come on, you know, that boy's not being mean to you. He likes you. Like, that was mean. He's being mean. But no, someone knows better. So that's what happens when you have somebody online who's trying to, say, groom a, a teenage girl. They may know in their gut, something's not right, or this person's kind of giving them the heebies or whatever it is. But also I want to be cool. I want an older boyfriend. He's buying me new shoes, like whatever it is. So you're, you're shoving that gut feeling down and and not trusting yourself, learning to quiet the trust you should have in yourself. So by demonstrating it as parents or caregivers, I trust you to trust yourself. I trust you to come to me or another trusted adult if something doesn't feel right. And you lay that groundwork. So not only are you building trust between you and them, you're helping them foster that trust within themselves, which is huge, especially in a world that is trying to teach them constantly. Someone else knows better. Someone else knows better. There's an expert on this, or I'm an authority, or I'm an adult. So yeah, you may have this like feeling, but that doesn't mean anything. You're um, just a kid. What do you know? Yeah. You're just a kid. You're just, well, they won't say necessarily you're just a woman or that's just a, but we, we know we've been trained to say like, oh, that's like a woman thing, you know, and mm-hmm. you're too emotional, really, too emotional, yeah. all of those that, and just to, you know, hear you talk about that and see like this arena that, you know, by not having that, we're, it's, it's not just something, you know, honoring our intuition and honoring, you know, these, our emotions and these feminine aspects or yin aspects of ourselves, because it's more empowering. It's like, this is like safe, you know, it also just for our pure safety, we need to follow that um, and, and honor it. And, and I think, and I've heard a little bit in some ways that you said this, like, and you said with your two and four-year-old, there's ways that we're using the word consent and then mm-hmm. there's also ways, um, I'm assuming it's in those early years that we want to normalize intuition too, right? Like, and, and value it in our, in our children and value that they, when something doesn't feel right, like, let's talk about it. Let's, you want to trust that part of yourself and to foster that trust early on. So when they, you know, get to the teen years where it can really have even a more significant impact that we're more prepared, you know, like that we've mm-hmm. built that. Like that just, I just love that so much. And then that's going to carry on. Like hopefully we won't need it in the worst case scenarios, but it's going to help us in every scenario in our life, you know, as we're making choices, as we're making decisions and partners in, you know, even when they're not dangerous situations, they're important situations, right? Our school, the school we're going to go to, the friends we're going to keep, right? The choices we're making around what it means to be cool. Is it teenager and things we're going to be a part of, like trusting that intuition. So I, the the value is exponential, you know, in this. And you said something that this wasn't related to the intuition so much, but you gave an example and I'd love for you to share it here around the consent and the saying no. And I think it was around tickling like uh, your child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I thought that was a great example to like a physical example of how we can keep doing this. 
Absolutely. So it's something I do with my kids at their age, and it's sort of the perfect age to start introducing it. So my son will come to me like, tickle me, mama, tickle me. Like, okay, sure. So I'll tickle him. And like any kid or any even adult, right? You tickle and you you move away and say, no, no. And so whether he says no, or he moves his body away or something, I'll say, oh, I'm noticing you're moving your body away from my hands, or I hear you saying no, or I, I heard you say stop touching or stop tickling. So mama's hands are up. And he'll be like, what? No, keep tickling. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks for letting me know. I was noticing that your body seemed uncomfortable. And it I know this sounds, like, trust me, I know this sounds overly scripted to some people, or they're like, why can't I just tickle my child? They want to be tickled. Mm. The point isn't that you can't just tickle your child. And I'm not saying you have to use this sort of script every single time, but if you use it, they start to understand. And eventually, you know, with my, my son, I did it and he just kind of like, no, 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 keep tickling, keep tickling. And then the next time I said, oh, I heard you say stop. And I said, you know, when you say stop to, to somebody's hands touching you, they should be stopping, huh? Yes. And then I had friends, you know, by the house, friends of friends and they were, I think they were play fighting or something and they flipped him upside down and he was having fun until he wasn't. And he said, stop. And the adult male, you know, didn't, he's like, oh, you're still having fun. You're still having fun. And my son was like, no, when I say stop, you have to stop touching my body. And I was like, yeah, kid. (laughs) "Uh Exactly. So it's these little things, even uh, another example I've used is if you do pictures with Santa Claus And your kid is, you know, having an absolute meltdown about having to sit on Santa's lap. You really want that picture. I'm not saying after standing in line for three hours and you've got them in their outfits or whatever it is, you're like, oh, okay, well, you don't want to, you don't want to, let's go on home. You can say, okay, well, we are here. We're doing this. This is a family tradition. However, if you don't want to sit on Santa's lap, would you like to stand next to him? What are the other options? What about when friends or relatives come to visit and you've got grandma who really wants a kiss because grandma absolutely adores these kids. But these kids are like, hey, I see you once a year. I'm like, I don't really know and love you the same way you know and love me. Mm. Okay, well, you still have to be polite. When people come to our house, we say hi to them, right? Do you want a fist bump? Do you want to wave? Do you want to just use your voice to say hi? You do have to be polite, but no, you don't have to hug or kiss people. You don't want to. Mm -hmm. These little nuggets, you're planting seeds. So then when you have a, if this seed has been planted from the age of three till 13 and, you know, someone's out on their first date and they go in, their date leans in for a kiss instead of feeling that societal obligation of like, well, I don't want to be rude. You know, I guess I should kiss them. You can go, "Mm, I know it has been so ingrained in me that I don't have to hug or kiss people. I don't want to hug or kiss. So you know what? Not feeling it. How about a hug or how about nothing or whatever it is? Those little lessons, they seem, I I get pushed back all the time that they're like, you got to be kidding me. Like it's a four-year-old who cares? And I'm like, cause I'm not teaching the four-year-old. I'm teaching, I'm also teaching the six-year-old and the eight-year-old and the 14-year-old, I'm teaching all of them along the way that they have rights to their body. Right. And if I don't wire it in now, before the age of six, like it's much, much harder. Like, cause I'm thinking about as you're talking, like, God, what a, what a gift. And I don't care if it's awkward or scripted or, you know, like do it right. Like it's, 
you'll get more comfortable, you know, at it and it'll feel more natural to like, but if when we didn't get it ourselves, right, it is going to feel awkward when our parents didn't take us through honoring our choices or who we're touching. It's like, yeah, no, do it. Like, no, yeah, you just sit on my lap and get tickled, even though, you know, you're saying stop, like, no, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wish someone had done that for me, but I didn't have it, but I, I can, I can also give it to myself in ways as I'm giving it to my children. Right. I can affirm that part of myself and I'm thinking about, as you're saying that, like, yes, when we're around children and introducing this work and, and what you're doing at that age, so critical, but if we didn't have it, it's later and we still have a hard time saying no or setting those boundaries, we can, right? And I think that's yeah. what's so beautiful. We don't have to stay stuck in that mindset or driven by that old belief. We have to recognize it. And that's what we're talking about here. Raise that awareness. Like, oh, you mean I could have a choice in that? Or, you know, I have more agency than I realized, or I could do what I'm telling my children to do myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's probably going to teach them as well as anything, right? And uh, obviously, you're a explicit model for it, you know, for them. But we all, I think that's part of the game also for us, you know, whether we experience it or not, like, we can be advocates for ourselves. And as we're working on it ourselves, it'll, it'll have the impact on them. Well, thank you so much, again, for this the conversations were not quite done, but I, I realized like, oh my gosh, we, I said this to you, like before we got on, I'm like, I, it's always the hardest to end. Cause I can think of like 10 more things I want to talk about. Um, so we'll, we'll be sure that this isn't a one and only, you know, time that we absolutely, get to on, cause I'm really, um, I knew it was important, but then as we've talked, I'm just like seeing the layers of importance to it so much, so, so much But in the meantime, people can learn more about you and what you're doing and find ways to like bring you into their community, you know, get educated, like just all, all the ways and learn more themselves, all of that good stuff. How best for people to do that? Where will they find you? I'd love for you to say Absolutely. it out loud because even though it'll be in the show notes, I, I want people to hear it. Well, I can share um, myself personally. You can find me at, at the laughing survivor. So on Instagram at the laughing survivor, on TikTok, though, t- I'm still not sure if I like being on TikTok. I feel like I'm a little old for TikTok. I don't know. Anyway, I'm still even, learning social I'm media. About that. Oh <laughs> I can't quite figure out why I have to show up in seven different places and post the same thing everywhere. So the laughing survivor, the laughing survivor.com Instagram is where I'll show up mostly. So the laughing survivor on Instagram, If you go to my website, you can sign up uh, to hear more about my book when it comes out. I'm writing a memoir. I'm super excited for that. Now, if you are more in and around Wyoming area, it wouldn't be me directly you're connecting with, but Uprising, my nonprofit there, we focus mostly on prevention education. So we do camps for kids, training for parents and caregivers. We do law enforcement training. We've worked up with law enforcement to do sting operations, just all of the the prevention and education side of things. And you can find Uprising at uprisingyo.org. So that's uprisingwyo.org and reach out to to them. I'm still very involved with Uprising. You'd connect directly, most likely with Terry Markham, who's my co-founder. Wonderful. Well, Excellent. So I'm glad to have that. And again, I'll say it's, it'll be in the show notes, but that's okay. Um, uh, People can find it there if you didn't have a chance to write it down. Well, I'm just so like 
go you and want to, <laughs> uh, you know, uplift what you're doing and acknowledge it. And um, thank you so, so much. Last question Absolutely. Um, is I ask all my guests at the very end, what does rewrite the mother code mean to you? Oh, I love that question so much without starting a whole new episode to answer that. Um, I've mentioned my kids are really young and becoming a mom has easily been one of the biggest challenges for me for several reasons. One, my trauma and, and what that means and how I parent and how I experienced being pregnant and giving birth, like all of that became really, really complicated. But it was also mostly it means challenging the status quo for what is expected of motherhood from how you're supposed to talk to how you're supposed to look to how much you're supposed to love it to like all of that. Because I have, you know, one of my best friends who I refer to as the earth mother goddess of women, because she has always wanted to be a mom is everything. Mom is just amazing. And then I look at myself and I'm like, ah, it's not me. I don't love babies. I adore my children, but you know, illogical yeah. toddler tantrums will sometimes feel like they'll be the death of me. So not loving the first several years of motherhood has been so complex. And so mm -hmm. the idea of rewriting that, of saying, you can really not like this. You can love your children and heavily dislike the monotony of having to stick to a schedule and being screamed at and having to reason with someone whose brain is not logical. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. And know that your time is coming. Mm -hmm. I know when they get a little bit older, that is going to be my time to shine as a mom like that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm here for that right now. I am surviving motherhood. Yeah. I look forward to thriving in it. And I deeply, deeply, deeply hope for myself that when I am older, my kids are fully grown. I never once turn to a young mom and tell her, you know, appreciate it. It goes so fast mm. because I find that I get told that all the time, especially right now, my kids are young and I just want to be like, this has been the longest four years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, I look forward to the other side. I look forward to every little bit they grow and develop, but I think there is so much, I have found so much peace and acceptance the day I realized I could rewrite the mother code and I could really dislike yes. early motherhood yep. and know that that doesn't make me a bad, bad mom. It doesn't mean, mom. yeah, it doesn't right? mean that I wasn't cut out to be a mother. It just means that my personality, my history, my trauma, my skill set, my potty mouth, all of these things are better suited to slightly older children. <laughs> yeah. So my time is coming and I, I don't have it. to like every second of it. Here, here. Oh, I, I love that you're bringing that aspect into it. Cause I, I think even just telling that truth is rewriting the mother code. Right. And we, and that's the kind of voices we need, you know, and I, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, right. Is to make all of that. Okay. And to trust and honor ourselves and our beings and, and knowing you've explored why this is challenging. You're, it's not like you're like, oh, this is awful. And I'm a victim to it. It's like, nope, there's very good reasons why these young years are extremely stressful and upsetting and that the two can go together. I can still like love and do so many of the things that like need to be done and be there, 
but I don't have to like it every, <laughs> you know, every moment and then appreciate those rare moments where it's like, Oh, you know, I had a moment. <laughs> and okay. This one moment enough. was okay. Let's yes. focus on that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the, that's, and, and then if we don't even, I can't even find one of those moments, that's okay too. Right. But just to be acknowledging and aware of all of that is right on target. And I really appreciate you naming that one in particular, because the narrow version of like, what is a good mom is just, it's restricting and, and like straight jackets, all of us, you know, into like honoring who we are and what we are bringing to the table at this particular time and season. Right. Um, Absolutely. And we can expand it. Uh, well, you're right. It could be a whole nother episode and maybe that will be part of what the next one is. <laughs> on I, absolutely, I'm like so many things, you know, I already, I've <laughs> talked about my first book. I have a second book planned, which is literally, I plan to call it, I mom in the face of trauma. My first book tentatively called I laugh in the face of trauma. And it is the idea of like, I thought I had this all packaged up. It was on the shelf. Yeah, I took it out, you know, Wednesdays it. at 930 when I do therapy and then I put it back on the shelf and then I became, I got pregnant and it was like someone just went and exploded the it and it was suddenly comes down. Yes, yeah. And it's all oh, there, I thought I'd work through that. Yeah. Yes. So, and they give you that opportunity. That's the gift that they <laughs> are. Right. But if, if we're aware yeah. that that's what's happening, not that. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, yes. Alexandra, thank you so much again. And I'll look forward to our next time together for sure. Me too. Absolutely. Can't wait to be back. Wow. That was, I've had some time to reflect and just wanted to say a few words about this interview with Alexandra and just how beautiful, but stirring, um, you know, this topic is, you know, particularly as caregivers, mothers, parents, I mean, I think we can all relate overall, like just you know, the pain that surfaces when we think about the injustices and any kind of abusive things happening um, to us, and but then particularly to our children. And, um, but how important it is to surface uncomfortable conversations, to not ignore. And I think that was a big message, you know, from this interview is to go head on and head into and not, and I, I think I want to underline, like, not from this, like, paranoid, like, the world's a terrible place and, you know, like, just to live in this constant fear, but to be aware and to be that that bad things do happen and they can. And while I intend to to live a beautiful, safe life and the, the world is has so much to offer and the world is a big, beautiful place and it wants the best for me ultimately, and, um, you know, to really foster a very positive attitude about life and what's possible and be awake, be aware, be conscious, you know, that other forces are also at play and other forces, you know, negative forces are there, they're present. To me, it's a real call to consciousness and just, you know, being present as much as possible in our day to day, you know, noticing, being curious, and then when you have inklings of something being off or, you know, whether it's in your direct sphere um, or in your neighborhood or around other kids or people or f even family, because as Alexandra said, you know, she was sexually abused by a friend's uncle. And that's the, as we know, the most common way it happens is familiarity of some sort. So um, again, it's not like we're not going to like 
trust anyone, but we're going to notice and we're going to be aware and we're going to give our kids just like, I love the example of like, we're going to train our children not to walk into traffic and teach them what it means to cross the street and how you do that safely. It's like, how am I in the world safely? And that I have, and I, I just love the empowerment, you know, the agency of like, this is my space. This is my body. I, I get to decide who, how, when, to what degree um, anyone's going to be in in that space. And my space is valuable. I'm valuable. I'm precious. I'm a precious child of God, if you want to look at it that way. And I um, am going to take care of myself. I have value. And I think that that was another big piece that was really resonating with me is you know, when we have doubts about that, or when as young women or young girls, or I, I know this is changing so much, but there's still so much debunk and unwire and rewire about our value as women, and that our bodies have value and that we can be in them in ways that feel right to us. Um, and I could relate uh, very much to what Alexander said is like, oh, when I started getting attention for being attractive or, you know, oh, that's maybe that's where my value is because look at all this attention and affirmation. And if I haven't learned how to affirm myself or provide, you know, my own ways of, of feeling good about myself, I'm going to rely way too much on that external affirmation. Um, so these are all ways that, you know, we doing that work for ourselves. So then if we're, you know, mothering children or the people around us, we're going to be that much more available to teach and train them. Cause I, I think, you know, the examples Alexander was giving of how she is with her children, she's able to do that because she's been working on that herself. You know, she's been doing a lot of like deep work along the way in her own healing and continues to. And that's when we have the wherewithal and, and the knowledge to provide that for our children. So I just thought it was really important to underline some of this. And there's so, so much more, you know, I'm really taking to heart everything that, that she said about ways that we can protect, set clarity and boundaries uh, with ourselves, with our children and rewrite uh, what it means to have value for ourselves and what it means to, you know, be safe in the world in a way that doesn't rob us of our, of our joy and our freedom and our ability to take part, you know, fully in this life and in this world. So I'll leave you with that. Um, and, and many, many blessings. If you have thoughts, reactions, please get a hold of me and reach out. If this is stirring something for you, um, I'd, I'd love to support you in that. So please feel free to reach out in all the ways that you can through this, through my website, drgertrudelyons.com or DM me on Instagram at drgertrudelyons. Blessings. Thank you so much for choosing yourself and taking the time to listen to this podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Rewrite the Mother Code. It helps other people who need this message, aka all women, well, actually everybody, men included, to find it. I'm honored to have you on this journey in mothering yourself. Remember, change is uncomfortable, but it's beautiful and it starts with us. And if you can't wait until next week's episode, 
follow me on Instagram and LinkedIn at Dr. Gertrude Lyons or at my website, drgertrudelyons.com and sign up for my newsletter. I'll see you next time. 